From the Exploratorium in San Francisco, this is Small Talk. We're taking a survey today at the Exploratorium. What kinds of problems would you like medicine to solve that it can't solve yet? That it can't solve now. Okay, well, AIDS, that would be a nice one to solve. And heart disease. Um, cancer is a horrible, horrible disease. If they can come up with something like that, certainly, you know, that's one thing that needs to happen. This is the May edition of Small Talk. Today we're talking about nanomedicine. Your body is a marvelous machine. It grows, it plays baseball, it eats. But when things go wrong, you realize how complicated your body is and how hard it is to fix. If only we could repair or replace our body parts as they got damaged or worn out. Well, today we'll hear from a researcher who aims to do just that. She uses nanotechnology to create engineered tissues, such as heart muscle and bone. We'll also hear about how nanotechnology might be used to help you know what's going on in your body. And then stay tuned for our Nano News or Nano Nonsense quiz and find out the answer to the question, is nano-engineered underwear in our future? Hi, I'm Stephanie Chastine, and I'm a physicist at the Exploratorium, the Museum of Science, Art, and Human Perception. And I'm Karen Schmidt. I'm a science journalist. Each month we get together to have little conversations about little things. We find interesting people to chat with who are working in nanotechnology. Come join us for some small talk. Scientists have been able to build amazing things. Robots that land on Mars and huge colliders to smash atoms into infinitesimal specks. But it's been really hard to make things that work in the human body, like an artificial heart, bone, or a brain implant. Tejal Desai is a bioengineer with the University of California at San Francisco. We asked her why medical researchers are getting so excited about nanotechnology. One reason we became interested in nanotechnology is that the body has a lot of, sort of structure to it that really is at the nanoscale. So proteins and peptides, um, subcellular structures, uh, membrane structures. Um, these are all things that you, know, you couldn't see with the naked eye. They're smaller than a, a piece of hair. And um, if we really want to think about interfacing with those structures, uh, we would have to develop devices or tools that were at the nanoscale. So, so interfacing with proteins and DNA or other parts of the cell, that's uh, maybe the problem that you're interested in solving using nanotechnology? So we're interested in um, several different things, but at the basic level, yes. It's how do we interface with proteins and cells, um, but we want to do so so that we can actually help repair those cells or help regenerate tissue. Uh, so there's a field known as tissue engineering, and um, one of the goals there is how can we go in and replace or restore damaged or diseased tissues. And one way we can do that is actually by creating um, a synthetic scaffold or something in which we can grow new tissue um, and then either reinsert, reinsert it in the body or have the body's cells sort of recolonize that structure. And so we're doing that by creating sort of a nano skeleton, if you will, uh, a template that um, pre-patterns these cells and says, hey, this is a structure and we just need the appropriate cells to come in and can you recreate uh, a tissue of our choice. So let's talk a little bit about your work. Tell me about some of the specific nanostructures that you make in your lab 
um, what are they made of, and how big are they, and how might they be used to, say, improve something like orthopedic implants? Right. So um, we use uh, materials that span both the inorganic side, so things like titanium, uh, alumina, or silicon, um, all the way to more soft materials or polymers. And now polymers are plastics, but you're talking about biodegradable ones, so maybe not the kind we think of in packaging. Exactly. So these are things that you would put into the body and actually degrade into natural products. So once they're in the body, they serve its function for a specified time that we engineer. And um, after, for example, three months, once we have the cells in the structure doing what they're supposed to do, that material then degrades away. Um, But what we do to that material, whether it's a, a metal oxide or a polymer, is we actually put in a nanostructure, uh, a very defined architecture um, in which we can uh, essentially design how porous it is, if it has nano wires that grow out of it, if it has nanotubes, um, nano pits or pores. Um, and these particular topological cues actually attract certain kinds of cells. So um, one of the things we're trying to do is develop a nano-structured coating for implants. Um, And these are orthopedic implants because one of the the problems right now with uh, people who have total joint replacement is that um, the the major problem is that these implants, once implanted, do fine for a number of years. But after about five, ten years, um, they start to loosen and they actually um, detach from the rest of the the bony structure. And so one of the goals is can you actually facilitate the bone growing into the implant and actually forming a more natural interaction? What we've shown is that if you can put a nano architecture on these implants, you can have bone cells or osteoblasts actually extend their little processes or fingers um, and they will grab onto these nanostructures and they will actually um, form a very tight seal with the bone. And so if you look at these structures over a period of several weeks to months, um, you see almost a um, gradual interfacing from where you have the implant into now newly formed bone. And um, that interaction is only possible using this kind of nanostructure. So it sounds like the implant then connects better into the body itself. Right. So not only does it connect better, and then it also facilitates um, forming new bone. So uh, it turns out that nanostructure can then um, serve as a guiding cue and tell these cells, hey, you have a skeleton, now can you deposit bone matrix into these topographical features? So can you then engineer these nanostructures to pretty much act as living tissues? Or is it more that they're just joining with the living tissues? So you can do both. So the orthopedic implants is one example of where we're just trying to join a nanostructure with a living tissue, but we can actually engineer these structures to actually be the living tissue itself. Uh, So for example, in um, some of the work we're doing with the heart, um, what we're trying to do is create a scaffold for uh, cardiac myocytes. And these cells are cells that really need to have a very defined structure to be both mechanically and electrically connected because they beat and they beat you know, the whole uh, duration of your life. And so one of the keys is how do we organize them into a structure that will um, have them act like they are in the heart. 
And it's actually been a challenge because if you take these cells and you put them uh, into a Petri dish, they, they lose their function and you can't get them to do what they're supposed to do. But the, if you put them in the appropriate structure, uh, they begin to actually think they're in the heart um, and actually form new muscle tissue or heart tissue. Are there special safety tests or things that would have to be considered for nanostructures or nanomedicine that are different than just ordinary medicine or drugs? Oh, I think you need to do everything that you would do with, you know, quote-unquote, ordinary medicine and drugs would probably go a step further. And that's because uh, one of the things with nanostructures is that once you have them in the body, they're very hard to retrieve if they are um, at that size scale or sort of discrete particles or devices. And so um, one wants to be very sure that uh, even in high amounts or dosages that these, these aren't eliciting any toxic effects. So what kinds of nanomedicine technologies do you think might develop first? Would it be something that would be involved in drug delivery, perhaps? Yes, I think uh, from our lab, at least, uh, probably one of the, the first areas that would be developed is um, in that drug delivery area. And specifically, I think uh, one of the, the projects that we're working on, which is a, an intestinal patch, uh, it's, it's basically a device that facilitates um, taking protein or peptide drugs through an oral uh, route. So uh, it's a pill that has a nanostructure and you swallow it and what happens is that the actual nanostructure helps it bind to a portion of the intestine uh, and when it binds it actually helps to allow all of the drug to go through into the intestine, um, be absorbed into the bloodstream and then the particle sloughs off and doesn't actually stay within the body. And what kinds of drugs do you have in mind that might be used with this kind of patch? So um, drugs right now that we're thinking about are, are those that really are not available as oral formulations because we can't get them appropriately delivered. So insulin is one of the most obvious uh, areas, um, also some chemotherapeutic agents. So if all of your dreams came true for your work, mm-hmm. um, where do you think we'll be say 20 years from now, what might we be able to do in nanomedicine that we can't do today? Well, there's, you know, I I think the whole notion of of what we call personalized medicine uh, is something that's coming down the pipeline, and that is a concept where we're really thinking about designing treatment strategies that are for the individual as opposed to sort of a global population. And I think nanotechnology is really going to play a role in that because um, we'll be able to more precisely customize Um, whether it's developing or regenerating a tissue for someone or delivering a drug or um, ultimately combining bio-nanotechnology with electronic nanotechnology, be able to program in and and think about monitoring um, and sensing all on one platform. Um, These are things that really we couldn't do in any other way, but really combining some of the advances in many different fields, um, putting them together could be both effective but ultimately, I think, safer. That was Karen Schmidt talking with Dr. Tejal Desai from the University of California in San Francisco. And we've got a listener from Santa Cruz with a question about the health risks posed by nanoparticles. Okay, this is for small talk. Um, I was wondering if anyone had ever tried to quantify the risk from natural or incidental nanoparticles um, in comparison to the risk from engineered nanoparticles. 
So I was just wondering about that. Okay, thanks. Bye. What a great question. There have been nanoparticles in the environment long before we were able to specifically engineer them. In fact, smoke and other emissions from burning fuels often contain carbon nanoparticles. Scientists have been studying the health effects of ultrafine particulates and air pollution for decades. We know that the nano-sized materials in diesel soot can get deep into the lungs, enter the bloodstream, and inflame the blood vessels. That's not so great. In fact, on bad air days, more people have strokes and heart attacks than on clean air days. Animal studies suggest that some engineered nanoparticles, like single-walled carbon nanotubes, can cause similar effects on the blood vessels, that is, if large doses enter from the lungs. But a lot more research needs to be done to confirm that. Are the kinds of nanoparticles that we make in the lab the same as those created when we burn fuel? And are they just as bad for us to breathe? We're not sure. But it's not just the nano size of the particle that matters. The type of material, like carbon or silver or titanium dioxide, is also important, of course. And so is the route of exposure, whether you inhale the particles, absorb them through the skin, or eat them. There are potentially zillions of different kinds of nanoparticles, each with unique properties, and very few have been tested to see if they're hazardous to people or wildlife. If you have a nano question, please call us here at Smalltalk at 1-888-781-3202. Biologists and doctors have lots of reasons to study the human body, but sometimes you and I also want to know what's going on in there. Like, why am I so tired? Is my blood sugar low? Or am I taking a large enough dose of antibiotic to knock out my sinus infection? In this month's perspective, we hear from Dr. Thomas Murray, president of the Hastings Center, that's a nonprofit bioethics research institute. He shares his hope that nano devices will empower us to take better care of ourselves. I suspect that the future of human nanotechnology will draw on both the ancient and the modern. That is, it will combine the classic Greek injunction to know thyself with the latest whiz bang electronic gizmo. You know, the one you need an 11 year old's help to operate. Well, somewhere well south of Socrates' concern with philosophical insight, we can find more pedestrian modes of self-knowledge. Take the heart rate monitor, which migrated from the intensive care unit to the chests of athletes, from would-be Olympians to the rankest amateurs such as myself. Each summer vacation, I have only a couple of weeks to build enough strength and stamina to ride as many miles in a day as I am years old, an annual challenge I pose to myself one that gets a tad more daunting every year. The heart rate monitor helps me because it lets me know when to pedal my bike harder and when to ease off. It's also dead simple to use. There's your heart rate in big numbers on the display. If you know what you're aiming for, you know whether you're hitting your target. It's likely that one of the first human applications of nanotechnology will be devices that can monitor what's going on in your body. And there are many people who could immediately benefit. The Centers for Disease Control estimates that over 18 million people in the United States have diabetes. Most of them have to monitor their blood sugar levels frequently so that they know when and what to eat and how much insulin or other medications they should take and when. People who take drugs like warfarin to avoid blood clots need regular tests to make certain that their blood is not clotting too quickly, which would put them at risk of death from blocked arteries. But they also don't want their blood to clot too slowly because of the equally unpleasant prospects of hematomas and hemorrhagic strokes. 
Now imagine that a simple nanotech device could give you a continuous report on your clotting time or your glucose level. You could adjust your drugs or your actions to precisely match your body's current needs. The risk of damaging your body would plummet, and your new knowledge would help you feel in control of a crucial aspect of your health. Even better, if you don't have diabetes yet, early and accurate feedback about your own body could perhaps motivate and empower you to avoid the disease. 90% or more of all diabetics in the United States have type 2 or adult onset diabetes. Much of this could be delayed or even prevented by early warnings followed by changes to a person's diet and exercise habits. If the oracles of nanobiomedicine are wise, they'll make certain that the earliest products include the equivalent of heart rate monitors for critical measures of our own physiology. And they will fashion these so that you and I can understand what the gadgets are telling us. I believe it's important that we avoid two pitfalls. One, the feeling that nanotechnology is taking us wherever it wants to go rather than where we want to take it. And two, the need to rely ever more on experts simply to understand what's going on within our own bodies. We should be able to maintain our independence and our control over this intimately personal information. I don't really care how my heart rate monitor works. I care that it tells me something useful about myself, and it gives that information directly to me, no outside expert required. New kinds of nanomonitors should do the same. They should empower us, not some distant expert. And these gizmos shouldn't require the services of an 11-year-old to operate either. If we get it right, nanobiomedicine can have a bright and a friendly future. That was Dr. Thomas Murray, president of the Hastings Center in New York. And now it's time to play Nano News or Nano Nonsense. Hi, I'm Stephanie Chastine, and today we've got two lovely contestants. Um, our first contestant is Jean Marie Asaturo, Senior Public Programs Developer at the Exploratorium. Welcome, Jean Marie. Thank you. Happy to be here. Our other lovely contestant is Dave Barker who is a graphic artist here at the Exploratorium. How long have you been here, Dave? Well, I think we're going on 24 years, so I'm sort of uh, part of the woodwork, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying a new format for our news quiz this month. Um, the way this is going to work is I'm going to read you a news story having to do with nanotechnology. Dave and Jean Marie's job is to decide whether they think it's nano news or nano nonsense. If they get right, guess right, they get a point. And whoever has the most points at the end of the game wins our prize. And there's a total of three stories. Our prize this month is the Moon Mission Cooperative Family Board Game. Excellent prize. So, oh, I like how you're leaving it out for us to look at. It's to, incentive. incentive. Right, right, motivation Ages to win. Eight to adult. I think we fit somewhere in there. Somewhere. And the runner-up will win. Ooh, ooh, ooh. This Perry Como album. Yes. Does anybody have a record player? Yeah. Tie a yellow ribbon and Killing Me Softly. 
Excellent. I, I hate to break it to you, but I might be going for second place. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that way, too. <laughs> I might throw this. Tell you what, the, the, the winner gets to choose. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's good. Okay. Well, here we go. Uh, so our first story is blood-cleaning nanospheres. In the event of a dirty bomb attack, nanotechnology could come to the rescue. Researchers are developing nano-sized spheres that could clean the blood of people exposed to radioactive fallout. The victim would be injected with these nanospheres that can grab on to radioactive substances in the patient's blood. The patient's blood would then be routed outside their body and through a tube that passes by a magnet. Since the spheres contain a little bit of iron, the magnet would remove them along with the radioactive material that they've captured. Hopefully the blood could be purified and returned to the body before too much internal damage has been done. What do you think? Nano news or nano nonsense? I it. think that's poppycock. <laughs> so that would qualify as nonsense then? In uh, your yeah, I think that that's, that's total hooey um, because I just don't think that that would work. It seems like a lot of trouble to go to for each person to try to uh, uh, clean their blood from the radioactive substances, which I thought would be something in the order of like gamma rays and the sort of things that don't get attracted to spheres. Does that sound knowledgeable? <laughs> well, remember it said in the event of a dirty bomb attack, not not gamma rays per se. Well, the gamma ray dirty bomb I think I still is think next. it's poppycock. Okay, so Dave thinks that it's nonsense, and Jean-Marie? Well, I, I can't argue with Dave's logic that it does seem impractical at best to individually clean each person's blood. But then again, this is the United States government, so I'm going to say that it's nano news. Okay. Well, the blood cleaning nanospheres are nano news. Yes. <laughs> oh, jeez. Just because it's implausible doesn't mean it isn't true. I forgot about the government angle. <laughs> Those are under development at Argonne National Labs in Chicago. So the nanospheres, they're studied with surface proteins that act as grappling hooks for a specific poison, um, which could be radioactive or that it could be biological. Their size is important because they're small enough to fit through the capillaries, but they're too large to be filtered out of the blood by the kidneys. So that means that they flow through the body and they do their job until the magnet removes them or they biodegrade. And one day those nanospheres could save the lives of soldiers in combat zones where terrorists are using dirty bombs or biological and chemical weapons. And the same techniques could also eventually be used to help save victims of a drug overdose. Sorry, Still Dave. sounds like poppycock to me. So we've got Gene Marie 1 and Dave 0. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, no gloating. Might as well kiss Perry Como goodbye. Oh. Okay, so our second story. You ready? A cup of nanotechnology. Researchers at a multinational food corporation have developed a new coffee filter using nanotechnology that gives the best tasting brew yet. The filter is made of a lightweight ceramic that's riddled with precisely engineered nano-sized holes. The steeped liquid is forced through the holes under high pressure. The grounds are left behind, of course, but so are the larger proteins that give coffee its bitterness. The result is an incredibly smooth cup of coffee, even from the relatively low-quality beans grown in Asia. The company plans to market their filters and beans to a chain of new coffee shops in Eastern Europe. News or nonsense? Oh, I'm going to say nano-nonsense. I'm praying that it's nonsense because this sounds like it's going to be a $12 cup of coffee. Dave? Uh, I'm a big fan of the old 
uh, pot of cowboy coffee. So I kind of like that bitterness and that uh, I think you'd be removing a lot of the flavors that would um, that give coffee its, its je ne sais quoi. Uh, so I think that that's hooey. I think it's nano nonsense. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that I mean, how much water could you actually get through a nano-sized hole? Yeah. All right. So the answer is a cup of nanotechnology is nano nonsense. Oh yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on the board. Yes. And Dave's reasoning was right on the ball. Hey hey hey. Do I get extra points for that? Like <laughs> 0.5 points or something? We'll discuss later. Yeah, okay. Well, no bargaining slip, with the judges. Put slip, your wallet away, Dave. Slip me a fiver, yeah. So a cup of joe is a complex mixture of sugars, proteins, and a number of acids, which combine in various ways to form the huge variety of compounds that give coffee its characteristic aroma and flavor. Nanofiltration would indeed remove the unwanted bitter compounds, but it would also take out all the good stuff. Hmm. You'd end up with a watery beverage and a decaffeinated one at that. Regular coffee filters have micrometer-sized holes, um, and those just catch the sediments and oils from the grounds, letting most of the flavor molecules pass through. It is the quality of the coffee beans, as well as how they're roasted, ground, and brewed, that ultimately determines the drink's final flavor, as any barista can tell you. Filters with nano-sized pores cannot be used to make a better cup of coffee, but they can be used to purify drinking water by trapping viruses, bacteria, and chemical pollutants. That sounds like a much better use of that technology. So we have Jean-Marie 2 and <laughs> Dave trailing behind at 1. For our last story, to determine the winner, nano-boxers or nano-briefs? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hate doing laundry? Thanks to the U.S. military, you may not need to, at least not as often. They've developed clothing that repels bacteria, stains, and water just by adding nanoparticles. The nanoparticles are permanently attached to clothing fibers using microwaves. A U.S. Air Force scientist said, quote, We treated underwear for soldiers who tested them for several weeks and found that they remained hygienic. <laughs> Is that it? That's it. Define hygienic? Oh, man. Dave, you want to take this one first? I don't even want to get anywhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, like with the government, it's the Army. And I think it's kind of crazy. <laughs> but does that mean it's not true? Well, I had this roommate in college who didn't shower for three weeks because he said then his skin would grow this bacteria that would eat up all the stinky stuff on his body and... and didn't work. But uh, somehow, in a crazy way, I think that this is true. I think this is plausible in a very weird way. Hmm. I'm conflicted because I've heard about these nano socks that supposedly are antibacterial, but I think you're still supposed to wash them. I don't know. Especially underwear. underwear. It's, a, it's a whole different ball game. It is. It is. It's a ball game. I'm not sure I want to <laughs> witness. Or... This is for all the, the marbles, baby. I know. This is for Perry Como. I know, Perry. I hope I'm not letting you down. Um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say nonsense because I'm just really hoping that it isn't true, <laughs> and I'm especially hoping that I don't personally ever need to come into contact with an individual who has chosen to wear this item of clothing. Nano boxers or nano briefs? She's going for the bell. Yes. <laughs> it's nano news. <laughs> oh, that is so sweet, sweet, 
horrifying. <gasps> yeah. So the Air Force became interested in developing new fabrics after they found out that more soldiers died in Desert Storm due to bacterial infections oh. than from accidents or friendly fire. But were they bacterial infections in their pants? <laughs> <laughs> Just ask. So. They spent five years and $20 million to develop an antibacterial chemical coating. Of course they did. Since yeah. the, chemicals, the chemicals won't stick directly to the fabric, but they're stuck onto nanoparticles that are attached to the fabric fibers. And the new coated fabrics could also be used in hospital bedding and uniforms. And the fabric coating has recently been licensed to Alexium Limited in the United Kingdom. They claim that within the year, treated undies and T-shirts will be ready for the market. So it's not just underwear. So we actually have a tie. Yes! Everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. Um, and Perry. Rock, well, paper, scissors? Why don't you think of like a really small number and then we have to guess it. You know what? I will, uh, I will let Jean-Marie have the one that she would like. Well, Dave, I appreciate your generosity, but I, I have a horrible confession to make. I actually already have that Perry Como you record. What? <laughs> so congratulations. Oh, this is so sweet. <laughs> oh, this is good. I believe in music. Killing me softly with her song. I think you have a new small talk theme song. Thanks so much for playing and enjoy your prizes. Oh, are you kidding? This is great. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to go have a moon mission to the moon. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Small Talk. This is the last regularly scheduled episode of this series, but check back. We may be extending the podcast in the future to talk about more small stuff. If you have topics in nanotechnology you would like us to cover, please call or email us. Today's show was written and produced by Stephanie Chasteen and Karen Schmidt for the Exploratorium and the Nanoscale Informal Science Education Network. We are grateful for the assistance from Daniel Hurst and Richard Kegio. We are supported by the National Science Foundation, and you can find us on the web at www.nisnet.org slash podcasts, or email us at smalltalk at exploratorium.edu. Please call us with your comments and questions at 1-888-781-3202. All music is licensed under the Creative Commons. You've heard My Name is Jeff by Four Stones and you're listening to Liquid Gold by Global Beat. You've been listening to Small Talk. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>